Chapter Ten of Kitchener's Mob by James Norman Hall. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Kitchener's Mob by James Norman Hall. Chapter Ten. New Lodgings. One moving in. We were wet and tired and cold and hungry for we had left the train miles back of the firing line and had been marching through the rain since early morning. But, as the sergeant said, "'A bloke standin' by the side of the road watchin' this here column pass would think we was a-goin' to a Sunday-school picnic.' The roads were filled with endless processions of singing, shouting soldiers. Seen from a distance, the long columns gave the appearance of imposing strength. One thought of them as battalions, brigades, divisions— cohesive parts of a great fighting machine. But when our lines of march crossed, when we halted to make way for each other, what an absorbing pageant of personality! Each rank was a series of intimate pictures. Everywhere there was laughing, singing, a merry ministry of mouth-organs. The jollity on my part of the line was doubtless a picture in little of what was happening elsewhere. We were anticipating the exciting times just at hand. Mac, who was blown to pieces by a shell a few hours later, was dancing in and out of the ranks, singing, "'Oh, won't it be joyful! Oh, won't it be joyful!' Preston, who was killed at the same time, threw his rifle in the air and caught it again in sheer excess of animal spirits. Three rollicking lads, all of whom we buried during the week in the same shell-hole under the same wooden cross, stumbled with an exaggerated show of utter weariness singing we never know till now how muddy mud is we never know how muddy mud could be and little charlie harrison who had fibbed bravely about his age to the recruiting officer trudged contentedly along his rifle slung jauntily over his shoulder and munched army biscuit with all the relish of an old campaigner Several days later he said good-bye to us, and made the journey back the same road, this time in the motor ambulance, and, as I write, he is hobbling about a London hospital ward, one trouser leg, pathetically empty. I remember that march in the light of our later experiences, in the light of the official report of the total British casualties at Lewes. Sixty thousand British lads killed, wounded, and missing marching four abreast a column of casualties miles in length. I see them plodding light-heartedly through the mud as they did on that gray September day, their faces wet with the rain. And a bloke standin' by the side of the road would think they was a-goin' to a Sunday-school picnic. The sergeant was in a talkative mood. Listen to them guns barkin'. We're in for it this time straight. Then, turning to the men behind, have you got your wills made out, you lads? You're a-goin' to see a scrap presently, and it ain't a-goin' to be no flea-bite. I give you my word. Right you are, sergeant. I'm leaving me razor to his majesty. Hope he'll take it the end. Strike me pink, sergeant. You gettin' cold feet? Let's sing em. I want to go home. Get em to cryin' like a baby. Where's your mouth, Oregon, ginger? Right, o' oh Mike, it's weepy now, slow march. I want to go home. I want to go home.
Jack Johnson's coal boxes and shrapnel. Oh, lor, I don't want to go in the trenches no more. Send me across the sea, where the alleman can't shoot me. Oh, my, I don't want to die. I want to go home. It is one of the most plaintive and yearning of soldiers' songs. Jack Johnson's and coal boxes are two greatly dreaded types of high-explosive shells which Tommy would much rather sing about than meet. Wait, the sergeant said, smiling grimly. Just wait till we see the end of this here march. You'll be singing that song out of the other side of your faces. We halted in the evening at a little mining village and were billeted for the night in houses, stables, and even in the water-soaked fields, for there was not sufficient accommodation for all of us. With a dozen of my comrades I slept on the floor in the kitchen of a miner's cottage, and listened far into the night to the constant procession of motor ambulances, the tramp of marching feet, the thunder of guns, the rattle of windows, and the sound of breaking glass. The following day we spent cleaning our rifles, which were caked with rust, and in washing our clothes. We had to put these still wet into our packs, for at dusk we fell in, in column of route, along the village street where our officers told us what was before us. I remember how vividly and honestly one of them described the situation. Listen carefully, men. We are moving off in a few moments to take over captured German trenches on the left of Luz. No one knows yet just how the land lies there. The reports we have had are confused and rather conflicting. The boys you are going to relieve have been having a hard time. The trenches are full of dead. Those who are left are worn out with the strain, and they need sleep. They won't care to stop long after you come in so you must not expect much information from them. You will have to find out things for yourselves, but I know you well enough to feel certain that you will. From now on you will not have it easy. You will have to sit tight under a heavy fire from the German batteries. You will have to repulse counterattacks, for they will make every effort to retake those trenches. But remember, you're British soldiers. Whatever happens, you've got to hang on. We marched down a road nearly a foot deep in mud. It had been churned to a thick paste by thousands of feet, all the heavy wheel traffic incident to the business of war. The rain was still coming down steadily, and it was pitch dark, except for the reflected light on the low-hanging clouds, of the flashes from guns of our batteries and those of the bursting shells of the enemy. We halted frequently to make way for long files of ambulances which moved as rapidly as the darkness and the awful condition of the roads would permit. I counted twenty of them during one halt, and then stopped, thinking of the pain of the poor fellows inside, their wounds wrenched and torn by the constant pitching and jolting. We had vivid glimpses of them by the light from flashing guns and the Red Cross attendants at the rear of the cars, steadying the upper tiers of stretchers on either side. The heavy garrison artillery was by this time far behind us. The big shells went over with a hollow roar, like the sound of an express train heard at a distance. Field artillery was concealed in the ruins of houses on every side. The guns were firing at a tremendous rate, the shells exploding several miles away with the sound of jarring thunderclaps. 
In addition to the ambulances, there was a constant stream of outgoing traffic of other kinds. Dispatch riders on motorcycles feeling their way cautiously along the side of the road. Ammunition supply and battalion transport wagons. The horses rearing and plunging in the darkness. We approached a crossroad and halted to make way for some batteries of field pieces moving to new positions. They went by on a slippery cobbled road, the horses at a dead gallop. In the red lightnings of heavy gunfire, they looked like a series of splendid sculptured groups. We moved on and halted, moved on again, stumbled into ditches to get out of the way of headquarters cars and motor lorries, jumped up and pushed on. Every step through the thick mud was taken with an effort. We frequently lost touch with the troops ahead of us, and would have to march at the double in order to catch up. I was fast getting into that despondent, despairing frame of mind which often follows great physical weariness, when I remembered a bit of wisdom out of a book by William James which I had read several years before. He had said in effect that men have layers of energy, reserves of nervous force, which they are rarely called upon to use, but which are nevertheless assets of great value in times of strain. I had occasion to test the truth of this statement during that night march, and, at intervals later, when I felt I had reached the end of my resources of strength, and I found it to be practical wisdom which stood me in good stead on more than one occasion. We halted to wait for a trench guide at the village of Vermeils, about three miles back of our lines. The men lay down thankfully in the mud, and many were soon asleep despite the terrific noise. Our batteries, concealed in the ruins of houses, were keeping up a steady fire, and the German guns were replying almost as hotly. The weird flashes lit up the shattered walls with a fascinating, bizarre effect. By their light I saw men lying with their heads thrown back over their pack-sacks, the rifles leaning across their bodies, others standing in attitudes of suspended animation. The noise was deafening. One was thrown entirely upon his own resources for comfort and companionship, for it was impossible to converse. While we were waiting for the order to move, a homeless dog put his cold nose into my hand. I patted him, and he crept up close beside me. Every muscle in his body was quivering. I wanted to console him in his own language, but I knew very little French, and I should have had to shout into his ear at the top of my voice to have made myself heard. When we marched on, I lost him, and I never saw him again. There was a further march of two and a half miles over open country, the scene of the great battle. The ground was a maze of abandoned trenches, and was pitted with shell holes. The clay was so slippery, and we were so heavily loaded that we fell down at every step. Some of the boys told me afterwards that I cursed like blue blazes all the way up. I was not conscious of this but I can readily understand that it may have been true. At any rate, as a result of that march, I lost what reputation I had for being temperate in the use of profanity. We crossed what had been the first line of British trenches, which marked the starting point of the advance, and from there the ground was covered with the bodies of our comrades, men who had done their bit, as Tommy says, and would never go home again. Some were huddled in pathetic little groups of two or three, as they might have crept together for companionship before they died. Some were laying face downward, just as they had fallen, others in attitudes revealing dreadful suffering. 
Many were hanging upon the tangles of German barbed wire, which the heaviest of bombardments never completely destroys. We saw them only by the light of distant trench rockets, and stumbled on them and over them when the darkness returned. It is an unpleasant experience, marching under fire on top of the ground, even though it is dark and the enemy is shelling haphazardly. We machine-gunners were always heavily loaded. In addition to the usual infantryman's burden, we had our machine-guns to carry, and our ammunition, water supply, tools, and instruments. We were very eager to get under cover, but we had to go slowly. By the time we reached our trench, we were nearly exhausted. The men whom we were to relieve were packed up, ready to move out, when we arrived. We threw our rifles and equipment on the parapet, and stood close to the side of the trench to allow them to pass. They were cased in mud, their faces, which I saw by the glow of matches or lighted cigarettes, were haggard and worn. A weak growth of beard gave them a wild and barbaric appearance. They talked eagerly. They were hysterically cheerful, voluble from sheer nervous reaction. They had the prospect of getting away for a little while from the sickening horrors, the sight of maimed, shattered bodies, the deafening noise, the nauseating odor of decaying flesh. As they moved out, there were the usual conversations which take place between incoming and outgoing troops. What sort of week you had, mate? It ain't been a week, son. It's been a lifetime. Lucky for us you blokes came in just when you did. We've about reached the limit. How far we got to go for water? About two miles. Awful journey. Take you all night to do it. You got to stop every minute. There's so much traffic along that trench. Go down Stanley Road about five hundred yards. Turn off to your left on Essex Alley. Then your first right brings you right out by the house where the pump is. There's a straight tip. Send your water fatigue down early in the morning, three o'clock at the latest. There's thousands using that well, and she goes dry after you a little while. You blokes want any souvenirs? All you got to do is pick em up. Helmets, revolvers, rifles, German diaries. You wait till morning. You'll see plenty. Is this the last line of Fritz's trenches? Can't tell you, mate. All we know is we got here somehow, and we've been a-holdin' on. My God, it was awful. They calmed down a bit tonight. You blokes is lucky, coming in just when you did. I ain't got a pal left of my section. You'll see some of them. We ain't had time to bury them. They were soon gone, and we were left in ignorance of the situation. We knew only approximately the direction of the living enemy. And the dead spoke to us only in dumb show, telling us unspeakable things about the horrors of modern warfare. Fortunately for us, the fire on the German batteries during our first night in captured trenches was directed chiefly upon positions to our right and left. The shells from our own batteries were exploding far in advance of our sector of trench, and we judged from this that we were holding what had been the enemy's last line, and that the British artillery were shelling the line along which they would dig themselves in anew. We felt more certain of this later in the night, when working parties were sent from the battalion to a point twelve hundred yards in front of the trenches we were then holding. They were to dig a new line there, to connect the intertrenchments, which had been pushed forward on either side of us. 
At daybreak we learned that we were slightly to the left of Hill 70. Haluch, a small village still in possession of the Germans, was to our left front. Midway between Hill 70 and Hulich, and immediately to the front of our position, there was a long stretch of open country, which sloped gently forward for six or eight hundred yards, and then rose gradually toward the skyline. In the first assault the British troops had pushed on past the trenches we were holding, and had advanced up the opposite slope, nearly a mile further on. There they started to dig themselves in, but an unfortunate delay in getting forward had given the enemy time to collect a strong force of local reserves behind his second line, which was several hundred yards beyond. So heavy a fire had been concentrated upon them that the British troops had been forced to retire to the line we were then occupying. They had met with heavy losses both in advancing and retiring, and the ground in front of us for nearly a mile was strewn with bodies. We did not learn all of this at once. We knew nothing of our exact position during the first night, but as there appeared to be no enemy within striking distance of our immediate front, we stood on the firing benches, vainly trying to get our bearings. About one o'clock we witnessed the fascinating spectacle of a counter-attack at night. It came with dramatic suddenness, the striking, spectacular display of a motion-picture battle. The pictorial effect seemed extravagantly overdrawn. There was a sudden hurricane of rifle and machine-gun fire, and in an instant all the desolate landscape was revealed under the light of innumerable trench rockets. We saw the enemy advancing in irregular lines to the attack. They were exposed to a pitiless infantry fire. I could follow the curve of our trenches on the left by the almost solid sheet of flame issuing from the rifles of our comrades against whom the assault was launched. The artillery ranged upon the advancing lines at once, and the air was filled with the roar of bursting shells and the melancholy wing of flying shrapnel. I did not believe that anyone could cross that fire-swept area alive. But before many moments we heard the staccato of bursting bombs and hand grenades, which meant that some of the enemy, at least, were within striking distance. There was a sharp crescendo of deafening sound, then gradually the firing ceased, and the word came down the line, counter-attack against the guards, and jolly well beaten off, too. Another was attempted before daybreak, and again the same torrent of lead, the same hideous uproar, the same sickening smell of lighted, the same ghastly noonday effect, the same gradual silence, and the same result. 2. Damaged Trenches The brief respite which we enjoyed during our first night soon came to an end. We were given time, however, to make our trenches tenable. Early the following morning we set to work removing the wreckage of human bodies. Never before had death revealed itself so terribly to us. Many of the men had been literally blown to pieces, and it was necessary to gather the fragments in blankets. For weeks afterwards we had to eat and sleep and work and think among such awful sights. We became hardened to them. Finally, it was absolutely essential that we should. The trenches and dugouts had been battered to pieces by the British artillery fire before the infantry assault, and since their capture the work of destruction had been carried on by the German gunners. Even in their wrecked condition, 
we could see how skillfully they had been constructed. No labor had been spared in making them as nearly shell-proof and as comfortable for living quarters as is possible for such earthworks to be. The ground here was unusually favorable. Under a clay surface soil there was a stratum of solid chalk. Advantage of this had been taken by the German engineers who must have planned and supervised the work. Many of the shell-proof dugouts were fifteen and even twenty feet below the surface of the ground. Entrance to these was made in the front wall of the trench on a level with the floor. Stairways, just large enough to permit the passage of a man's body, led down to them. The roofs were reinforced with heavy timbers. They were so strongly built throughout that most of them were intact, although the passageways leading up to the trench were choked with loose earth. There were larger surface dugouts with floors, but slightly lower than that of the trench. These were evidently built for living quarters in times of comparative quiet. Many of them were six feet wide, from twenty to thirty feet long, and quite palaces compared to the wretched little funk-holes to which we had been accustomed. They were roofed with logs a foot or more in diameter, placed close together, and one on top of the other, in tiers of three, with a covering of earth three or four feet thick. But although they were solidly built, they had not been proof against the rain of high explosives. Many of them were in ruins, the logs splintered like kindling wood, and strewn far and wide over the ground. We found several dugouts, evidently officers' quarters, which were almost luxuriously furnished. There were rugs for the wooden floors, and pictures and mirrors for the walls, and in each of them there was the jolliest little stove with a removable lid. We discovered one of these underground palaces at the end of a blind alley leading off from the main trench. It was at least fifteen feet underground, with two stairways leading down to it, so that if escape were cut off in one direction, it was still possible to get out on the other side. We immediately took possession, built a roaring fire, and was soon passing canteens of hot tea around the circle. Life was worth while again. We all agreed that there were less comfortable places in which to have breakfast on rainy autumn mornings than German officers' dugouts. The haste with which the Germans abandoned their trenches was evidenced by the amount of war material which they left behind. We found two machine-guns and a great deal of small-arms ammunition in our own limited sector of frontage. Rifles, entrenching tools, haversacks, canteens, greatcoats, bayonets were scattered everywhere. All of this material was of a very best. Canteens, water-bottles, and small frying-pans were made of aluminum, and most ingeniously fashioned, to make them less bulky for carrying. Some of the bayonets were saw-edged. We found three of these needlessly cruel weapons in a dugout, which bore the following inscription over the door. Gott treat herein, bring luck herein. It was an interesting commentary on German character. Tommy Atkins never writes inscriptions of a religious nature over the doorway of his splinter-roof shelter. Neither does he file a saw-edge on his bayonet. We found many letters, picture-postcards, and newspapers among the latter, one called the Krieg Zutung, published at Lille, for the soldiers in the field, and filled with glowing accounts of battles fought by the ever-victorious German armies. Death comes swiftly in war. One's life hangs by a thread. The most trivial circumstance saves or destroys. Mac came in to the half-ruined dugout, where the off-duty machine-gunners were making tea over a fire of splintered logs. Jamie said, 
Take my place at Century for a few minutes, will you? I've lost my water bottle. It's here in the dugout somewhere. That'll be only a minute. I went out to the gun position a few yards away, and immediately afterward the Germans began a bombardment of our line. One's ear becomes exact at distinguishing the size of shells by the sound which they make in traveling through the air, and it is possible to judge the direction and the probable place of their fall. Two of us stood by the machine-gun. We heard at the same time the sound which we knew meant danger, possibly death. It was the awful whistling roar of a high explosive. We dropped to the floor of the trench at once. The explosion blackened our faces with light it, and half blinded us. The dugout which I left less than a moment ago was a mass of wreckage. Seven of our comrades were inside. One of them crawled out, pulling himself along with one arm. The other arm was terribly crushed, and one leg was hanging by a tendon and a few shreds of flesh. My God, boys! Look what they did to me! He kept saying it over and over while we cut the cords from our bandoliers, tied them about his leg and arm, and twisted them up to stop the flow of blood. He was a fine, healthy lad. A moment before he had been telling us what he was going to do when we went home on furlough. Now his face was the color of ashes, his voice grew weaker and weaker, and he died. But we were working over him. High explosive shells were bursting all along the line. Great masses of earth and chalk were blown in on top of men seeking protection where there was none. The ground rocked like so much pasteboard. I heard frantic cries for picks and shovels, stretcher-bearers, stretcher-bearers, this way, for God's sake. The voices sounded as weak and futile as the squeaking of rats in a thunderstorm. When the bombardment began, all off-duty men were ordered into the deepest of the shell-proof dugouts, where they were really quite safe. But those English lads were not cowards, orders or no orders. They came out to the rescue of their comrades. They worked without a thought of their own danger. I felt actually happy, for I was witnessing splendid, heroic things. It was an experience which gave one a new and unshakable faith in his fellows. The sergeant and I rushed into the ruins of our machine-gun dugout. The roof still held in one place. There we found Mac, his head split in two as though it had been done with an axe. Gardner's head was blown completely off, and his body was so terribly mangled that we did not know until later who he was. Preston was lying on his back, with a great, jagged, blood-stained hole through his tunic. Bert Powell was so badly hurt that we exhausted our supply of field dressings in bandaging him. We found little Charlie Harrison lying close to the side of the wall, gazing at his crushed foot with a look of incredulity and horror pitiful to see. One of the men gave him first aid with all the deftness and tenderness of a woman. The rest of us dug hurriedly into a great heap of earth at the other end of the shelter. We quickly uncovered Walter, a lad who had kept us laughing at his drollery on many a rainy night. The earth had been heaped loosely on him, and he was still conscious. "'Good old boys,' he said weakly. "'I was about done for.' In our haste we dislodged another heap of earth, which completely buried him again, and it seemed a lifetime before we were able to remove it. I have never seen a finer display of pure grit than Walter's. Easy now, he said. Can't feel anything below me waist. I think I'm hurt down there. 
We worked as swiftly and as carefully as we could. We knew that he was badly wounded, for the earth was soaked with blood. But when we saw, we turned away sick with horror. Fortunately, he lost consciousness while we were trying to disentangle him from the fallen timbers, and he died on the way to the field dressing station. Of the seven lads in the dugout, three were killed outright, three died within half an hour, and one escaped with a crushed foot, which had to be amputated at the field hospital. What had happened to our little group was happening to others along the entire line. Americans may have read of the bombardment which took place that autumn morning. The dispatches, I believe, described it with the usual official brevity, giving all the information really necessary from the point of view of the general public. Along the Luz la Brasse sector, there was a lively artillery action. We demolished some earthworks in the vicinity of Hulich. Some of our trenches near Hill 70 were damaged. Damaged! It was a guarded admission. Our line was a shambles of loose earth and splintered logs. At some places it was difficult to see just where the trench had been. Had the Germans launched a counterattack immediately after the bombardment, we should have had difficulty in holding the position. But it was only what Tommy called a big apartheid. No attempt was made to follow up the advantage, and we at once set to work rebuilding. The loose earth had to be put into sandbags, the parapets mended, the holes blasted out by shells, filled in. The worst of it was we could not get away from the sight of the mangled bodies of our comrades. Arms and legs stuck out of the wreckage, and on every side we saw distorted human faces, the faces of men we had known, with whom we had lived and shared hardships and dangers for the months past. Those who have never lived through experiences of this sort cannot possibly know the horror of them. It is not in the heat of battle that men lose their reason. Battle frenzy is perhaps a temporary madness. The real danger comes when the strain is relaxed. Men look about them and see the bodies of their comrades torn to pieces, as though they had been hacked and butchered by fiends. One thinks of the human body as involved, a beautiful and sacred thing. The sight of dismembered or disemboweled, trampled in the bottom of a trench, smeared with blood and filth, is so revolting as to be hardly endurable. And yet we had to endure it. We could not escape it. Whichever way we looked, there were dead. Worse even than the sight of dead men were the groans and entreaties of those lying wounded in the trenches, waiting to be taken back to the dressing stations. I'm shot to the stomach, matey. Can't you get me back to the ambulance? Ain't there some way you can get me back out of this? Stick to it, old lad. You won't have long to wait. There'll be some other Red Cross along here for you to jiffy now. Give me a lift, boys, can't you? Look at my leg. Do you think it'll have to come off? Maybe they could save it if I could get to the hospital in time. Won't some of you give me a lift? Can I hobble along with a little help? Don't you fret, Sonny. You're going to ride back in a stretcher presently. Keep your courage up a little while longer. Some of the men in their suffering forgot everyone but themselves, and it was not strange that they should. Others, with more iron in their natures, endured fearful agony in silence. 
stirring memorable half-hours filled with danger and death. Many of my gross misjudgments of character were made clear to me. Men whom no one had credited with heroic qualities revealed them. Others failed, rather pitiably, to live up to one's expectations. It seemed to me that there was strength or weakness in men, quite apart from their real selves, for which they were in no way responsible, but doubtless it had always been there, waiting to be called forth at just such crucial times. During the afternoon I heard for the first time the hysterical cry of a man whose nerve had given way. He picked up an arm and threw it far out in front of the trenches, shouting as he did in a way that made one's blood run cold. Then he sat down and started crying and moaning. He was taken back to the rear, one of the saddest casualties in a war of inconceivable horrors. I heard of many instances of nervous breakdown, but I witnessed surprisingly few of them. Men, more often badly shaken, and trembled from head to foot. Usually they pulled themselves together under the taunts of their less susceptible comrades. 3. Vesoles and a Requiem At the close of a gloomy October day, six unshaven, mud-encrusted machine-gunners, the surviving members of two teams, were gathered at the C Company gun emplacement. D Company's gun had been destroyed by shell, and so we had joined forces here in front of the wrecked dugout, and were waiting for night when we could bury our dead comrades. A fine, drenching rain was falling. We sat with our waterproof sheets thrown over our shoulders and our knees drawn up to our chins, that we might conserve the damp warmth of our bodies. No one spoke. No reference was made to our dead comrades who were lying there so close that we could almost touch them from where we sat. Nevertheless, I believe that we were all thinking of them, however unwillingly. I tried to see them as they were only a few hours before. I tried to remember the sound of their voices, how they had laughed. But I could think only of the appearance of their mutilated bodies. On a dreary autumn evening, one's thoughts often take a melancholy turn, even though one is indoors, sitting before a pleasant fire, and hearing but faintly the sighing of the wind and the sound of the rain beating against the window. It is hardly to be wondered at that soldiers in trenches become discouraged at times, and on this occasion, when an unquenchably cheerful voice shouted over an adjoining traverse, "'Watch your lads! Are we downhearted?' A growling chorus answered with an unmistakable, Yes. We were in an open ditch. The rain was beating down on our faces. We were waiting for darkness when we could go to our unpleasant work of grave-digging. Tomorrow there would be more dead bodies and more graves to dig. And the day after, the same duty. And the day after that, the same. Week after week. We should be living like this killing and being killed, binding up terrible wounds, digging graves, always doing the same work, with not one bright or pleasant thing to look forward to. These were my thoughts, as I sat on the firing bench with my head drawn down between my knees, watching the water dripping from the edges of my puttees. But I had forgotten one important item in the daily routine, supper. 
and I had forgotten Private Lamy, our cook, or, to give him his due, our chef. He was not the man to waste his time in gloomy reflection. With a dozen moldy potatoes which he had procured, heaven knows where, four tins of corned beef, and a canteen lid filled with bacon grease for raw materials, he had set to work with the enthusiasm of a born artist, the result being risoles brown, crisp, and piping hot. It is a pleasure to think of that meal. Private Lemmy was one of the rare souls of earth, one of the Mark Teplays who never lost his courage or his good spirits. I remember how our spirits rose at the sound of his voice, and how gladly and quickly we responded to his summons. Here you are, me lads, bully beef, risoles, and hot tea, and it ain't arf bad for the trenches if I do say it. I can only wonder now at the keenness of our appetites in the midst of the most gruesome surroundings. Dead men were laying about us, both in the trenches and outside of them, and yet our risoles were not a whit the less enjoyable on that account. It was quite dark when we finished. The sergeant jumped to his feet. Let's get at it, boys, he said. Half an hour later we erected wooden crosses in Tommy's grave-strewn garden. It bore the following inscription written in pencil. P.T.E. number 4326. MacDonald. P.T.E. number 7864. Gardner. P.T.E. number 9851. Preston. P.T.E. number 6940. Allen. Royal Fusiliers. They did their bit. Quietly we slipped back into the trench and piled our picks and shovels on the Prados. Got your mouth organ, Andy? someone asked. He's always Andy. What'll he have, lads? Give us silk and hat, Tony. That's a proper funeral hymn. Right you are. Sing up now. And we sang Tommy's favorite kind of requiem. I'm silken hat, Tony. I'm down and I'm stony. I'm not only broke, but I'm bent. The fringe of my trousers keeps lashing the houses. But still I'm a gay and content. I stroll the West Gallery. You'll see me there daily. From Burlington Arcade... Up to the old bailey, I'm stony, I'm tony, but that makes no difference, you see. Though I haven't a fraction, I've this satisfaction. They built Piccadilly for me. End of chapter 10